friends, welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, where we seek to find culturally aware, biblically nuanced in Jesus, embodying responses to current day issues. I'm excited to have Byron Smooker on the podcast today, and we talk about stats and data. Now, the thing that got me interested in this conversation, particularly why I wanted to have Byron on, is that I have observed in just some very casual usage of data myself, running some surveys and so forth, I've observed that it's easy to misrepresent data. I can kind of manipulate it to say what I want to say. And I've noticed that in Christian discourse, I've noticed how Christian authors use data. And, and sometimes I, I generally don't trust or I just take it kind of with a grain of salt. When somebody's written a book and they've done this massive survey, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical because there's just so many ways that we can skew data and, and not be honest with it. So Byron Smooker was the only person that I'm aware of that I know of who has a degree in statistics who and kind of seeing some of his comments every now and then he'll share an article or something that has to do with stats. It's like completely not my world, but kind of interesting to poke my head into every now and then. Byron has a PhD in statistics and operations research from Penn State and currently serves as an associate professor, teaches at of statistics at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And so he's got training in this, he has experience in it. And I just wanted to have him on and, and discuss statistics. Now I do want to highlight, we did not get into this much, but Byron has a blog and one of the things he's fairly consistent on his blog is is kind of his yearly reading list and so uh, his blog let me see if i can get the address correct i think it's the biolog redux the biolog redux so by as in by log redux.wordpress.com i'll have it in the show notes as well but he uh every year at the very least every year he posts the books that he's read and little thoughts about it i really enjoyed his um on march 16th of this year he posted an anabaptist perspective on jesus and john wayne which was basically an edited version of a of a speech that i think um he gave at his at Miami University, uh, he sat on a three-person panel to give a short response to her talk. And and so it's just kind of an edited version of his response to that. I found it really interesting. I definitely recommend checking that out as well. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Byron Smucker. have Byron Smooker on the podcast today to talk about statistics. Byron, thanks for joining Unfeigned Christianity. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So I have, yeah, I've known, <laughs> you were my first, I guess, celebrity crush or whatever when you, when you sang with <laughs> AHQ, I would. Okay, there you go put you put you guys in my um it wasn't a walkman but like the cd players that you could strap on the side yeah. and i would <laughs> pretend i was singing uh byron smucker solos and everything 
I never there you had, go. Well, never, HQ got around quite a bit uh, <laughs> uh, back in the, when was it? 2000s, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah early 2000s. Never, never did quite have the voice that matched it, but it was fun to pretend at least. So, but it's good to have. I've heard, I've heard. I'm not even sure where I discovered this that you had gone to college for statistics, that you were kind of in that field, and particularly in recent years, I have been more and more intrigued with statistics or just how we use data and kind of some of that coming from my own anecdotal experience in discovering that, oh, I can, like, it's just kind of the, without knowing what you're doing, you can kind of misuse data easily. And so I've had an increasing interest in having somebody on the podcast and just talking about stats and, and how Christians interact with it and discourse. And, and so the fact that you're a, not only do you have a degree in it, you're teaching it, I believe, Miami University mm -hmm. in Oxford. That's, that's, you're the only person I know or know of in that field. And so I reached out to you and was like, Hey, can we have a conversation about this? And, and you were kind enough to oblige what maybe just to get us started, what, what got you into statistics? Like what inspired you to pursue a career of statistics? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, you've done a lot of topics on your blog, probably statistics and data, probably not going to get the most clicks for you. So, but, but that's okay. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I, I didn't, I grew up enjoying school and enjoying math. And I had a couple of aunts uh, who went to college, paved the way f for me in that. And so I was just sort of like, okay, I'm going to go to community college. You know, I'll go for engineering because engineering uses math. And eventually I went to Oregon State. Uh, I'm from the West Coast, from Oregon. And I got a degree in engineering, industrial engineering. And at that point I was like, well, the, I'm not real mechanical. So I didn't go on sort of that direction uh, in engineering. And then like industrial engineering just wasn't quite what I was looking for. And so I was like, well, what parts of that do I like? And I like the more stat, the statistics, uh, sort of optimization, sort of the more mathematical parts of of uh, industrial engineering. And so I decided to just go for uh, a graduate degree of some sort in in um, in statistics or a related discipline operations research. And so, you know, it was just sort of one of those things, Asher, it's like you, you have a vision for something and you try it and you're like, I'm going to keep trying until like a big roadblock is thrown up. And, you know, I ended up going to Penn State and got a, a master's degree there. And I was like, well, let's try this. Let's, let's, I, I'm, I'm enjoying, you know, the studies and the research part, especially uh, let's try it. And so, you know, I ended up getting a PhD there. My wife is also from Pennsylvania, so we began dating, got married over that time. And then, and then, so academic jobs are a bit strange. They're a bit few and far between. It's not like you go to a place and then just like, oh, I'm going to get a job. Unless you are, you know, clear at the top where you can sort of name your own hmm. job. But uh, I, I applied to a bunch of places and ended up finally getting a call from Miami in March of 2010, I think it was. And so we moved out to uh, Southwestern Ohio and I've been there ever since. 
Oh, wow. So you've been teaching at the same school for 13 years now. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yep. Okay. And in that time, I will just say quick, a quick plug. So for those of you who may be, you know, thinking about college, if you want to go that direction over the last, I would say like five to eight years, stats has sort of blown up. Uh, you may have heard of of terms like big data, data science, analytics, like all those buzzwords, like they're, they are permeating a lot of business, even science, like all those things. And so stats, statistics is sort of the traditional version of those things. But even in our program at Miami, just a lot of growth, a lot of growth over Hmm. the last decade for sure. Yeah. Uh, So, it's, a, it's if you like math, if you like, you know, but not not super hardcore math. I, I have a, a cousin who is getting a PhD in math, I think. And that's another ball game. That's that's a whole nother thing. But if you're interested in, in math and, and interested in data, uh, it's a great it's a great discipline. Yeah, I've noticed even in the sports world, like a lot of sports in game decisions are being driven by analytics and data and stuff like that, that yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my my uh, I, I I play and enjoy basketball, and famously, Houston Rockets sort of did the thing where let's not shoot mid range shots. Let's shoot either layups like right close to the basket or three pointers because they're worth more. And of course, in baseball, that's a lot of a lot of analytics driven strategy yeah. as well. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, kind of a a complete side note. I hadn't discuss talking about this, but something that I often hear when, when people are processing whether or not to go to college is this kind of uncertainty of they don't really know what they'd go for. And not only is this kind of my experience, but people like you who now have a career in your degree, I just, the more I talk with people like this, I, I discover it's kind of this way that you, you didn't really know right out hand, you kind of yeah. Like you said, you, you had interest and you went down that road until there was a roadblock until you lost interest yeah. and stuff. What, yeah, what, what is that process like? And for people kind of processing whether or not to invest in college, what do you tell them? Yeah, I guess there's a couple things. I, I would not uh, recommend like just a blanket that everyone go to college uh, because, you know, especially with some of the heritage that, that I have, uh, in the in the conservative Anabaptist tradition, there is there is there are ample you know good job opportunities within those communities. I was just talking to someone yesterday, and this is a I think it's fairly well known at this point that the trades like there's a there's a dearth of people of good people in the trades like HVAC and electrician and plumbing and stuff, and and those are more like you know on the job training. There may be some uh, academic training, but so. You know, it, this is not to say that everyone should go to college, but if that is like an interest of yours, you know, more academically minded or or even like uh, you have an idea that you want to be a lawyer, you want to be an engineer, you want to be an educator or whatever, you know, you don't have to have everything all mapped out, you know, when you're 19 or 18. In fact, most most people would not. So uh, there's a there's a balance there. Asher, because I would actually want my children and want myself 
to get some experiences. Like, you know, I, if, if I'm not mistaken, you've, you've gone to college later in, in life and, and I can, I can tell you for sure that the maturity that I have now, you know, if I was going back to college, it would be a different experience. It would be a more enriching experience, honestly, mm. than when I was 18 or 19 playing the, playing the game of being good at college, you know, but not as, you know, not as interested in actually learning the stuff you're interested in getting the, for me, you know, is actually learning, getting the grade, you know, doing well, you know, getting the credentials versus actually learning for, for the sake of learning and, and your future career or whatever. So, yeah, I, I, I would not, even though in some way it's most efficient just to go straight out of high school, go to college and get your, you know, get your career start, whatever. I don't think that's, that's probably the best route for, for many people because there's so much richness that come from experiences in other cultures, you know, just life experience, job experience, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I echo that. I wish it is tough when you're going to college and raising a family yeah. tough with time, tough financially, but I don't, I don't regret the years, the gap years, I guess you could say of yeah. experiences. Yeah. Well, one of the things that kind of tipped me over the edge of, of having you on the podcast was just some discussion about how Christian, particularly Christian authors as an author myself, I, I think about some of this stuff, how we interact with data and specifically when we have a message that we're wanting to communicate and then create a survey or something to kind of show or prove that message. And, and just uh, for my audience, a little bit of a background, I've, I've run three reader surveys on my blog, usually anywhere between 200 and 600 participants. So it's nothing massive, nothing, definitely not scientific. It's just kind of a, a get a feel for who's reading, but I've noticed that I can frame my data in a certain way. You know, the largest, I, I split age categories. I split them up. I think it's like 18 to 25, 26 to 35, 36 to 45, so on and so forth. And the largest readership or the largest category is the 26 to 35 range. That's like, if you look on a, What's the kind of graph where, where you have the different like a bar uh, chart, a bar chart. Yeah. However, so, so it, it's tempt. It was tempting for me to say most of my audience is 25 to 30 or 26 to 35. However, there were actually more entries from people older than that. They were just the specific categories were, were mm -hmm. smaller. And so in recent particularly the recent uh, past couple months, there's been a conversation kind of on Christian Twitter that I've been following between a couple authors that both did surveys and they're both kind of trying to negate the other person's survey. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, I just kind of follow it at a distance and I've been, I guess I've grown a little, little hesitant to take, Christian surveys super concretely anyways, just because they seem to often be done 
with a message they already want to communicate as opposed to just kind of explore like some 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 data that i've researched in college projects like is just they literally this group of people were literally just doing a study to see what the trends were and then they wrote about what they found and that has a different effect as opposed to try doing a survey to try to show what you already think and so that that's kind of what got me thinking about stats and and how we use it and then you brought up a number of other things just even how you've used stats to to answer difficult questions about god and and how stats can point to or i forget exactly how you word it but how we as christians can use stats to talk about the divine and, and to talk about faith with with other people and so yeah i was just maybe i'll just open it wide up and be like what what direction do you want to take because that was really intriguing to me too i did i had never thought about how me, the, the the famous question for kids that i've i've done some teaching the for kids who hate math like when am i going to use this how am i going to use this or how does this glorify god you know and, and just mm -hmm. realizing that even numbers and stats and stuff can can be a window into into some of those difficult life questions that people will inevitably face was is also intriguing to me so i don't know i'll yeah. just leave it wide open where where would you like to go well well you you've you've hit on a, a lot of things there uh, uh, maybe i'll start with uh, keeping on my my advertisement for statistics a little bit so i've thought quite a bit since i've sp spent such a large amount of my life you know in statistics and around data I've thought quite a bit about how I can connect that, how it's connected to uh, my faith. So let me just quickly say something about that, but then I can get to the, the questions that, that you, you really have. So one way uh, to, to think about what statistics is, if you're going to define it in, in just like a line, uh, you could say it like this. You could say statistics is the use of data to make reasoned conclusions and decisions in the face of uncertainty. Okay, so data to make using data to make reasoned conclusions and decisions in the face of uncertainty. And if you break that, if you use that as a working definition, you break that apart, you can you can come up with three really important virtues that are really easy to connect to our Lord and King Jesus. The reason conclusions part has this idea of we're trying to get to the truth. So statistics is really um, uh, an epistemology. It's how it's a way to know to know things or try to learn things about the world. And so if if statistics is is about making reasoned conclusions, then it cares about getting at truth. If it if it cares about making uh, decision making, one of the interesting things about stats is that it's not typically done for the for the purpose of the statistics themselves. It's almost always done in service of something else or someone else, whether it's business, science, government, whatever. And so uh, statistics is a service discipline. And, and so service is, is, is right there, helping people make decisions. And then the last one, the face of uncertainty, statistics is pretty unique in that way. And we try to quantify uh, not only what we know, but what we don't know. And so we'll make a, uh, we'll say, okay, here's our best guess as to what, whatever you're trying to estimate, some number. 
But then we're going to put a, an interval around that. Confidence interval is what we often call it. And that represents like our uncertainty about what we're saying is true. And so there, there's humility there. And so like these, these virtues of truth, uh, service and humility are just right baked into the discipline. And, and if you're a Christian, you know, I can say those things to my uh, non-Christian students. But if you want to make, it's not a very big leap at all uh, to connect truth, you know, to connect Christ with truth is the way, the truth, and the life. To, to connect um, service with Christ, you know, he served, you know, humbled himself uh, and became a servant. And then, you know, humility is there as well. Like Jesus, uh, as, you know, God coming to be to be man, uh, humbled himself. And so, you know, I... I I think it's good for anyone in any discipline, in any field, whatever you're doing. I think it's worth taking some time and thinking how your field specifically connects to your faith, to Christ. And it turns out in statistics, it's not, it's not all that hard to do. Have you been blessed by the work of Unfeigned Christianity? If so, I invite you to go deeper by becoming a member of Unfeigned Christianity on Patreon. All of our work is designed to help Christians find culturally aware, biblically nuanced, and Jesus-embodying responses to current day issues. And we could not do it without the support of our members. As a part of the membership, you get to go deeper into sorting through what does it look like to faithfully embody Jesus in a world and in our culture and time. There are three main tiers of membership. If you become an advanced member, which is the middle tier, I will send you a free copy of Lori and Matt Krieg's book, in Impossible Marriage. This is the best marriage book I've read. If you become an advanced member this month, I'll send you a free copy. Now here's the really good deal. When you do an annual membership, you get 16% off. If you'd like to see more details, just visit asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. So anyway, let me get to your question about the Christian discourse. It's interesting your own experience about you know framing the data uh, that you've collected. So w when you think about a, a survey, like we'll take your example there, the, the thing that makes it non-scientific is not the size of the survey. You know, th I don't know what your audience actually is, but 300 to 600 people, you know, is, is probably adequate. If, and here's the big if, if the sample is representative of all of your listeners, that's the key. A, a self-selected survey, it probably is not representative because, you know, they take, you get nationwide surveys in the United States with just a few thousand. Okay. So they're going from a few thousand scaling up to millions. You know, if you have a few hundred scaling up to say thousands, if you have that as your audience. The, the, the key is, is to get a representative sample. And that's the difficulty. The difficulty is you can't control who, who takes your sample, who takes your survey. And because of that, yes, it's probably, well, perhaps it's the more uh, tech savvy, perhaps that are, that are taking the survey or the more, the people that are, you know, there, maybe there's a personality quirk that makes some people more likely to take surveys than others. Like, that's the that's the difficult part and yeah so th that's that's the one thing that's a very key thing whenever you are trying to make a, a statement about a larger population either you need to have a representative uh, sample 
or you need to be pretty fancy and careful. You need to really know what you're doing in terms of taking your sample and adjusting it. Um, so like the, the political uh, surveys, they are very sophisticated in because they know that you don't, they don't get a representative sample. And so they know, you know, for instance, uh, they may sample Republicans on some on some question of interest. And they know that in this population, there's this proportion of male and this proportion of female, this proportion of, you know, of each of the age categories. And so when they get their sample and they realize that their sample doesn't match up with what they know are the demographics of the population, then they can do some statistical adjustments to, to bring that into calibration um, and so they can improve their, their estimates uh, for the population. So that's, that's one huge sort of statistical principle uh, that, that plays in here. Uh, the second one is there's a famous truism that correlation does not equal causation, right? You've probably heard it, mm -hmm. which is true. And this one is, the, this one is very hard for, for people that, that, are, that care about making a persuasive argument and are using data for that, it's very, very difficult to, to refrain from that in all, in all cases. Um, so so what, what the, the idea there, correlation is not causation, I'll, I'll give you a silly example, okay? But, and, and this is, is that ice cream sales and uh, shark attacks are positively correlated, okay? Sure. So ice cream sales and, and, and shark attacks are positively correlated. And on the face, they're not related, right? Like what's going on there? There's definitely no causal, you know, eating ice cream or buying ice cream and being attacked by a shark. But what's happening there is that there's an, another lurking variable there, right? Uh, and that is time of year or temperature, right? And so you you buy more ice cream in the summer, you're on the beach more, you know, exposed potentially to, to shark attacks. And so that's the thing that's actually driving the shark attacks, right? Not the ice cream sales. So that's a silly example, but, but you know, anytime you have a, uh, a study where you are tempted to make these causal relationships, unless you have a very experimentally controlled study, uh, and that's another uh, topic, but for most of the questions that we care about, we don't have that option. So let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I was in a social media conversation with someone about corporal punishments, uh, spanking of children. And if I recall, this, this person was citing a study that showed that, that, that spanking was detrimental on average for, for kids. Um, they had worse outcomes. And now it may be the case that on average, kids turn out worse if they are spanked. It, it, um, uh, the, the literature on that, I think, is fairly mixed. There's actually some evidence that there's, there can be good outcomes. But, but the, my point here is that these studies are not experiments. It, it was not the case that you took a thousand 
parents and you randomly assigned half of them to spank and half of them not to spank. And then you observed their children over the course of their life. That's not how these studies were done. Instead, they were done by interviewing or somehow studying a, a large group of families and taking a lot of information about them and following their children over time and seeing how their children turned out and also whether they spanked or not, you know, practice corporal punishment or not. And so, you know, it could be that spanking caused this outcome that they saw that was negative, or it could be something else that is correlated with spanking that was actually driving it. And, you know, as, as someone, you know, I, I grew up with corporal punishment. I, I did not have bad effects as far as I can tell in my life. And, and so, you know, I, I can, I can, I can pick apart a study like that and I can say something like, well, it, it may be true that on average, uh, this is, this is the case that, you know, children have bad outcomes on spanking, but it also could be the case that that's driven by something else. Maybe people that are spanking are angry. Right? Maybe people that are spanking are, are not in a good emotional space. And so because of that, they are lashing out in, in abusive ways to their children. And so I can say, well, there may be another category of, of people not studied or not at least you know, pulled out by this study that are actually, you know, quote unquote, doing it right. And in those cases, perhaps the children are, are, um, are better off for it. So th these are some of the intricacies, and I didn't mean to really, you know, this is not about spanking or not spanking, and I, I recognize the controversy there, and and people disagree about that. But but the point is that for complicated, you know, issues uh, like say corporal punishment or like you know gender dynamics, like climate change, you know, uh, like guns, you know, these are extremely complicated uh, situations, uh, uh, topics. And, you know, if you're a policymaker in the government, I can see why it would be valuable to have some large study that gives you an overall idea of like whether this is good or bad, right? Or you might have your people look at the literature. There's tons of stuff on guns, tons of stuff on climate change, you know, spanking even, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's out there. And it's, sometimes it's conflicting. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, one study will say one thing, the other study will say the other thing. How do you, and so to really get a handle on it, you need to survey the whole thing, right? And then you have to dig into like what, why is it that this study was different than this study? Well, did they do it differently? It was a different population. Like, and so what I want to paint a picture here is that if you data, you're asking too much of data, I think, mm -hmm. to, to very easily, you know, make a clear statement on very complicated issues. Hey friends, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Dwell app. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Dwell audio Bible app, but this app is phenomenal. It, it's changed my life in several different ways. As a Bible college student, 
I do tremendous amounts of Bible reading throughout the semester, more than I normally do. And I'm not a fast reader. And so one of the ways that I have been able to keep on top of the Bible reading is through the Dwell app. One, one of the things I really like about it is there's very meditative, reflective music played in the background of the reader. So it's not dramatized. Some, some audio Bible apps are dra dramatized and that's a little, I don't know, not my cup of tea. But it's a very calming and just peaceful way of having the Bible read to you. There's also, there's at least 15, I think there's close to 30 by now, different voices that you can choose from. There's many different translations you can choose from. For the ESV, I think there's maybe two or three voices, if that makes sense. But there's over 15 voices for sure. And so you can have a female voice, you can have a male voice, you can have a British accent, you can have an American accent, you can have a Canadian accent or a... Well, I like the British accent, so I listen to the Bible in the British accent, and it's it's been a really good way to keep on top of my homework. But also, I have found, sometimes I'll be listening to Audio Bible as I commute someplace, or as I'm doing some other work, or even in the morning. Sometimes it's hard to wake up, you're tired, and to sit down and read, it literally feels like an intellectual exercise. You're just, it's like school, like starting your day with school. And I love learning things, but I'm not like, I don't do well at starting my day with school. And so when you wake up and you're tired, but you want, you want to meditate on the word of God to just put in my Air, AirPods and listen to the Dwell app is, an incredible way to start my morning just in peaceful worship meditation I hear things differently when I hear it being read than when I read it I personally think you should read and hear it both but that's one thing I like about audio Bible is different things stick out that didn't stand out before I'll listen to it as I'm going on a run or something and I can't say enough good about the dwell app and so if you would like to take your meditation your Bible reading to another level. You can also, if you're not able to sleep at night, you can put in your AirPods and, and listen to the scripture being read and fall asleep that way. I've used that at times as well. But you can start for free. There's a link in the description below, or you can go ahead and purchase the the annual plan, which I have, and it's to me it's very much worth it. Just in the way, a couple things, the way it helps me uh, meditate and kind of a fresh view a fresh experience with scripture and then also the way it helps me keep on top of my homework it's been very helpful for me yeah that that's thanks for that that's interesting and it's also ironic because i just did an interview with a guy about spanking um, okay so <laughs> yeah now, it, it, it was just a totally the topic we were diving into was a totally new thing for me and i had read something he wrote and and so it was was intrigued to have more conversation around it but you're yeah. to your point kind of a a similar example maybe is i've i've written about my own journey uh, struggle with sexual addiction and then finding mm -hmm. freedom and i've discovered in the years since publishing my book that roughly like one in ten guys that i talk to face same-sex attraction and that that totally blew me away. I had no clue that was as prevalent of a thing. One one of those friends I was talking with 
And I mentioned that stat and he's like, well, it's actually probably more like one or 2%. But because I'm in that field, I'm talking about it. I'm getting mm -hmm. people wrestling with sexual struggles. Mm -hmm. And and I think in, in mm -hmm. doing more research just broadly in, in the culture at large, it is about one, two, maybe 3%, depending on mm -hmm. context mm -hmm. and stuff. So I could, I could have walked away saying 10% of people face same-sex attraction, but that would have been a fairly significantly misrepresentation mm -hmm. of of the actual population mm -hmm. and that's kind of if i'm hearing you correctly that's kind of what you're getting at because i was not constructing an experiment i was just taking an observation based of what's coming to me but because i'm in a particular topic it's it's kind of uh biased yeah so this would be that first issue that i talked about where you're the sample of people you're talking to is not representative of all people or all Anabaptists or whoever, whatever your population is. And so because of that, you're getting a biased uh, estimate of the proportion that are same sex attracted. And, and, you know, it's, it's not so hard to caveat that and say, Hey, uh, you know, I'm seeing, you know, about 10, you know, about 10% of the guys I'm talking to about this, you know, face this, but then you caveat it and say, I'm not saying that this is, you know, extrapolating to a, a larger population because I recognize that I'm not seeing, you know, I'm not randomly plucking, you know, mm -hmm. guys out of the population and then asking them. Uh, yeah. So that's that's really important to. Well, the other thing I would say about the like. Like like when you have something you are passionate about and you are you are um, advocating for or arguing for. I think it's very difficult, actually, to use statistics in a completely honest way hmm. um, because, well, I, here, here's, the, here's the question you could ask yourself. If you, are, if you believe something and you're advocating for it, which is great, and then you look for stats, statistics to back that up, okay? So here's my question for you. If you found the statistics did not back you up, would you present them? Hmm. Mm -hmm. If you, if you if your answer is no, then I, I don't think you're using statistics, at least in an ethical way that, uh, you know, my, my, the discipline of statistics, I, I, I'm happy to say that they, they do take ethics fairly seriously. And, you know, I, I have, I have an ethical statement that, that the American Statistical Association's put together and, you know, even though I have some fundamental disagreements worldview wise with where they're coming from, most of what they what they say in there, I, I fully agree with. And they say they say things like ethical statistical practice supports valid and prudent decision making with appropriate methodology. It says they they uh, they seek to understand and mitigate known or suspected limitations, defects or biases in the data. And they are they are very unswerving in terms of you need to present what the data is saying and you're not you're not to twist it in any way. And so even though it's strange, it, it to me as a statistician, it feels dishonest if you selectively share statistics. Hmm. Now, this does not mean that 
if you advocate for a position and the statistics don't back you up that your position's wrong, right? I think we have a, a tendency, probably a modernist tendency to want to empirically validate what we believe. But it's not necessarily the case that all of our true, all true beliefs uh, will be empirically, you know, validated. Or it could be that there's some complexity that has not been accounted for. And so maybe it would be, you know, validated if it was done the correct way or, or whatever. But, but just because you hold a belief and the statistics that you find on the internet or in the literature or whatever don't, you know, align with that doesn't mean that your belief's wrong, right? I, I think that there are, this is a philosophical point, but there are deeper reasons about, there are deeper things about morality and ethics that, that transcend numbers. And, hmm. and so it's nice when, you know, as an example, I believe very strongly in, in nonviolence and, and, you know, non-political work to change the world rather than, than using, you know, coercion and, and, politi and politics. Um, but, and so I could go out and search for, you know, uh, nonviolent movements and how they change the world. Right. And, and I can find some examples of that, but what if on average, you know, it's better by whatever measure you're talking about, it's better to use politics to change a culture than it is to use what I would see as the way of Jesus to do it. It doesn't mean that I'm going to I'm going to change my belief. I, my belief in Jesus way of love and nonviolence is not open to an attack from empiricism, if you want to say it that. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of our beliefs, especially ones that are core philosophical or religious beliefs, they they may not. They may not be open to empiricism either. And I want to be careful there hmm. because, you know, Christians can be accused, religious people perhaps, of, of just like, you know, believing these these things that are not that are not good. And I can show you by the numbers. And so there is a there is a there's definitely a place for Christians to engage, you know, critically with with the sciences and the and, and the social sciences and, and these areas and try to dig down and figure out like, okay, this, this seems to show something at odds with what I believe, like what's going on here. So I'm not, I am not advocating for sort of a, for an anti-intellectual mm -hmm. bury your head in the sand sort of thing. I'm just, I'm just arguing that uh, we probably over, we're probably over, What's the word? We, we probably we, we probably at times have given numbers and data and and studies maybe too much purchase in our hmm. in our in our worldviews. Uh, start with start with something that's that's deeper than that, and then go from there. Yeah, yeah. Kind of to what you said earlier, we we ask we can be tempted to ask too much from statistics or data that. How do you, have you had opportunity or, and if so, how, how do you help someone process particularly, I mean, I could, I could see, I know some people who f struggle to come to faith in Jesus because of ways science or data doesn't always line up with 
the biblical worldview. How do you help someone who's grown up in the Christian world, but then like confronts that data doesn't always tell their, their narrative And this, I mean, yeah, it could get into a bunch of different things. One, one thing that I've dealt with in, I'm in Bible college, which is a, a kind of a basic a bachelor's of biblical studies degree, but just discovering that the, the numbers in the book of numbers don't always match like what has been found archeologically in the middle East, as far as the amount of people that were in the, the wilderness time of the Exodus, there should be a lot more graves and dead bodies kind of discovered and so forth. And so kind of processing that, I don't, I don't know. Have you had much experience with that with people and, and how do you walk? Them yeah. Through? So, I mean, the, the big, the big question regarding that would be like evolution and, and the age of, of the universe and the age of the earth and all that. And, and, you know, things like, like archeology span in the old Testament, that sort of stuff. So what, where, how I think about that is, is I, I'm with Paul in first Corinthians 15 that says, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, then, then we're wrong. And so, that's the that's the sort of that's the empirical part of Christianity, if you will, that I that I hang my hat on. And that one is, you know, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is wrong. If Jesus did rise from the dead, okay, then then there is some reconciliation of these seemingly difficult questions. I mean, there's a tremendous number of questions that come up when you take a hard look at the Old Testament through 21st century eyes, you know, in terms of, of, of how certain groups of people were treated in the law, how God's people, you know, killed other ethnicities or other tribes, like that violence, all that stuff is, is, is difficult for many people. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not personally equipped you know, at the moment anyway, to, you know, go line by line and, and sort of refute those. There is lots of work that's been done on that, but I don't base my, my faith doesn't, doesn't rise or fall on, on that. I, I, my faith rises or rises or falls on, on Jesus, who I believe is the perfect image of God. And so some of those things from longer ago in the, in the past, I would say we have a clearer picture of what of what uh, God is through Jesus than we do through what it seems like God did, you know, through his people in the old Testament uh, and, you know, how the earth came to be, how, you know, the record of the old Testament. So that's, that's how I go about that. This, this also makes me think of, of that other topic that we were going to maybe touch on. And that is, uh, using a probabilistic framework to try to understand try to understand our beliefs. What I mean by that is, I think most of us come up and think like I either believe something or I don't, and 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 we don't really frame it in this way. But it's like I either a hundred percent believe something or zero percent believe it. Like I'm either sure that it's true or I'm sure that it's not, and. What I, what I understand is that 
if if you have that framework about anything like God uh, uh, existing, uh, Jesus rising from the dead, you know, the inerrancy of scripture, whatever, whatever issue you're trying to wrestle with, if you have that zero one sort of dichotomous view, then what can you do when someone comes up with an argument that maybe you've never heard and that seems pretty convincing, right? You know, there are some there are some difficult arguments that challenge the theistic worldview. And so if you hear that, especially if you're off, you know, you're 19 year old and you're in college or whatever, the first time you've never heard this stuff, what do you do? And so what I would advocate is thinking about our beliefs less as zero one and more uh, on a on a on a continuum. Hmm. Hmm. And so I, I, I believe that you can believe something without needing to have 100% certainty about it. So I can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, even though I'm not 100% certain that he did, right? And I can base my life I, uh, on that. I can, I can then also receive the witness of the Holy Spirit. I can receive the witness of, of you know, the communities that I observe. Like I, there's all these other sort of non-scientific or non- data or non-mathematical, you know, uh, evidences that I can use that can help me understand what I believe. But then, but then when I, when I come up with a, when I come up to a difficult argument, someone has a great argument that, oh, you know, the, the gospels don't agree on the details of the, of the resurrection. Like, and, and, and if I'm, if I'm in that zero one dichotomous mode binary, you know, zero one thing, then, then what do I do with that? Like I either have to live in cognitive dissonance, right? Like, or I have to give up my belief, right? And mm -hmm. I don't think either of those are healthy. And I don't think either of those are the way to think about it. And instead, we should think about updating our beliefs based on all the knowledge, all the information we have. Mm -hmm. And only if the weight of the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence was, you know, so much that I couldn't sustain a belief, then I would feel, you know, justified in, in changing my belief. But, but, you know, someone given an argument that I'd never heard before, that shouldn't be enough to change my belief. Otherwise my belief is very brittle, right? Mm. And it's not, um, it's not robust. It's not sustainable. So mm. that's, that's a way that I think about, you know, especially as I engage with the world, because the wider world, man, if you've been on, if you've been on, uh, Atheist Twitter, for instance, like there's a lot of people that are really smart and they have a lot of ideas and they have a lot of good arguments about this and, and other things that would attack uh, Christian belief. And, you know, we need to we need to develop we need to develop people that can weigh into that, that can weigh into that fray uh, that have a, a faith that's that's robust enough to withstand that. And that's 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 that requires strong communities. It's not just, you know, the way you think about stuff. It's also having strong communities and, but also, and, and, and it, and it probably, for some of us, it probably requires education too, some formal education, uh, not everyone, but, but some, and, and cause, cause, you know, I don't know about you, Asher, but I do want to change the world. I mean, I know that I can't on my own, uh, but I want to be a part of a movement that's changing the world. And, and if I'm a part of a movement that is just shrinking in the shadows, trying to, you know, protect what we have, 
that's not satisfying for to me because it's 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 too defensive. It's not offensive enough. And this little thing about epistemology and probabilistic thinking that's one little part of of how i think about engaging yeah yeah that's thanks for that that's good i'm curious i was going to ask you and, and maybe i will just now like what books you've read i remember seeing i think it was on facebook or something you were asking about rodney stark and his mm. have you read any of his work like the rise of christianity just that one yeah just, just that, that one. one what what did you think of of that book and kind of his use of probabilities to to defend essentially defend the rise of christianity i'm not sure that he was actually a christian when he wrote that or when he started it but well I, I, the thing i remember about one of the things i remember about that book is he he actually he or a colleague or someone tried to to model the growth of christianity like over the generations what i took from that though is that he was actually arguing that it wasn't uh, unexpected. So one of the arguments that, that Christians use is that the growth of, of Christianity was unexpected and, and it was faster than it was expected hmm. or something in that, like that. So I'm, I'm not sure if I, I recall him making the argument that, that it wasn't unprecedented, you know, a movement like that. But yeah, I mean, he's a sociologist, if I recall. And, and so they, they definitely would tend to use data in their work and, you know, I, I think those things are, are valuable and interesting, but again, and it's weird because I don't, I, I, I didn't expect to come uh, on your, on your podcast and sort of almost downplay the importance of statistics and data, but, but, but when you think of it in relation to these like deeper beliefs that we have, hmm. that people have. Uh, it, it's often, you know, it's often like when you when you hear a Christian and in a in a in an atheist debating. Some, sometimes there's a distinction that needs to be made between the physical and the metaphysical, right? The 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 physical. And if something is physical, then it is open to empirical study, you know, typically, and and that's where statistics can be of great benefit. But then, but then there are some things that I think are fundamentally beyond nature. They're supernatural or, or, or metaphysical. And, and those things, while they can be bolstered by certain scientific or empirical insights, they rest on, on they're, they're like, uh, you can't prove them via, you know, the scientific method. And, and I think that's the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, don't be, don't be intimidated, say, by by the scientific approach mm. or the empirical approach to be argued out of positions that are not even subject to that sort of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, make sure that 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 your that your metaphysics, you know, the things you believe about things beyond nature, like 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 whether God exists and how God works in the world, th those shouldn't be subject to, or I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking a little bit on the top of my head here, Asher. And so I'm, I'm a little worried that I'm uh, dualizing uh, Christianity and, and our lives. I do not want, I, I do not believe in, in a dualism that says here's the scientific part and here's the Christian part. Mm -hmm. I think they're mm -hmm. all, it's all one reality. 
But I think there is a, a there, we should have a recognition that some things are fundamentally beyond nature mm-hmm. and thus are not scientific. Scientific mm-hmm. science only, only deals with things that are in the natural world and, and, and subject to that measurement. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I enjoyed the conversation. I don't, I, I basically get guests on that I enjoy, regardless of whether I think everybody else will enjoy or not. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a, a number of things would be fun to dive into further, but this is good for now. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. And I enjoyed it as well. And thanks for listening to this episode with Byron. I hope you enjoyed it. For the sake of time, um, I am cutting out the last 20 minutes of our conversation. And those who are members of Unfeigned Christianity on Patreon can access the expanded version. I, I, I trust you have found the conversation this far helpful and inspiring and even just thought-provoking as we learn how to interact honestly with data. We do get into some conversation. He, he just briefly brought up like how he interacts with data when it doesn't actually back up his belief system. And what do you do with that? And, and I kind of bring up this whole conversation of deconstruction and just how like when we bump into specific statistics that don't prove our Christian worldview, what do you do with that? Or when we're when we're studying scripture, we discover there's there's things that archaeology is finding that doesn't quite match what we just kind of thought or assumed from scripture. How do we navigate that? Also I had a conversation about kind of his perspective on COVID and and how Christians use data during COVID and, and how he navigated that as well as is just what does it look like for Christian authors to use data honestly in their writing. So if you're interested in the final 20 minutes of this conversation, visit either the link below or just go to asherwhitmer.com forward slash member and you'll see the, the various sign up options there. Now, to access this expanded version podcast, there are three tiers. All you need is the lowest tier, which is $10 a month. You, you get access to all expanded podcast episodes as well as deep dive essays. So if that interests you, if you'd like to hear more of our conversation, check out the link below. Thank you. Unfeigned Christianity is brought to you by our members at Patreon. As a part of the membership program, you receive two deep dive essays a month and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfeigned Christianity podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in an Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.restorativefaithcollective.org. The second network is the Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit kingdomoutpost.org. Thanks for listening.